This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. How do we grow and thrive after a traumatic loss? Few of us know how to navigate the territory of traumatic loss successfully. Sweet Sorrow shows how we can respond and grow stronger from loss and suffering. Written by psychologist and certified bereavement trauma specialist Dr. Sherry Cormier, Sweet Sorrow chronicles the decade following the loss of her husband, father, mother, and only sibling. Dr. Sherry's carefully considered work provides perspective on grief and healing over time. Its longer-term approach allows readers to have a more complete and accurate picture of the oscillations of grief over time. The book describes not only the immediate agony of the author's losses, but also the process of starting over and making a successful new life as a single person full of hope and joy. Sweet Sorrow combines Sherry's psychological expertise and clinical experience with the compelling art of memoir to illuminate the surprising ways in which lost survivors can grow and even thrive to achieve wholeness after heartbreaking, traumatic losses. Using findings from post-traumatic growth, as well as evidence-based psychological approaches, Sweet Sorrow illustrates through story and example ways for grief survivors to start over, tools to manage chaos and stress, how to let go and to heal with new strategies and restoring, resources and recommendations for self-care, tips and suggestions to respond creatively and helpfully to those around us suffering loss. Sweet Sorrow is a work of inspiration intended to accompany readers through the process of loss and grief, much like a helpful Sherpa might guide a lost traveler. The author provides critical insight into the journey of death as experienced by a spouse. Valeria interviews Dr. Sherry Cormier. Sherry is a psychologist and consultant who engages in public speaking, training, and grief mentoring. She is a former professor at both the University of Tennessee and West Virginia University. Cormier holds a bachelor's degree from Kansas State University, and both her master's and doctoral degrees are from Purdue University. She is the author of Counseling Strategies and Interventions for Professional Helpers, Pearson Education, 9th edition, and the co-author of Interviewing and Change Strategies for Helpers, Cengage Learning, 8th edition. She is the co-writer and co-producer of over 50 training videos for Cengage Learning. Here is the interview with Dr. Sherry Cormier. In your own words, who is Sherry Cormier? Oh, wow. These, <laughs> these are great questions. <laughs> well, you know, I could tell you the demographics. You know, I'm a older female. I'm a widow. I was a wife. My husband died 11 years ago. I'm a mother to two wonderful daughters. Um, I have a bonus daughter as well through my late husband. I have a, several wonderful grandchildren. And I consider myself a, a healer, a writer. I love to work with people. I've, I'm very kind and compassionate. I'm very curious, adventurous, fun-loving. <laughs> Is that enough? 
That sounds really good. <laughs> yeah, really good. Yeah. Um, before we talk about some of the topics in your book, Sweet Sorrow, Find Enduring Wholeness After Loss and Grief, I have a few warm-up questions for you, as I mentioned, off record. What is life to you, Sherry? What is life? Oh, wow. I've been on a lot of podcasts, and these are these are probably the uh, the most in-depth questions. What is life? Well, you know, to me, life is, I really want to say life is love. Life is love. To me, life is love. Life is breath. Uh, to be fully alive, you are in the moment, you are breathing, you are mindful. But I think most of all, life is love. What do you think is the opposite of life? Well, I think hate. I think hate is the opposite of love. And I think that unfortunately we, I think we're in a conflict right now, almost between hate and love in the world, on the planet. Um, I think there's a lot of hate uh, that we see in everyday interactions and um, even in how people treat Mother Earth. There's hate. Do you connect hate to fear? Yes. I think people who hate are afraid. I think hate does come out of fear. I also think hate comes out of ignorance. You know, just sheer, utter ignorance of not knowing and not being curious enough to want to know. Which from all of that comes judgment. Instead of asking questions, we... Uh... Yes. Um, what is the meaning of freedom to you? Well, it's <laughs> <laughs> really right. good, Valeria. Uh, <laughs> freedom. Hmm. Well, it's, I'm laughing because you know, wonder we're all under. Well, most of us. I certainly am in a state where I'm still under COVID nineteen uh, shelter in place. Many of us are. So we're finding the we're finding the opposite, I guess, of freedom, which is restriction. I I don't think freedom. I think freedom uh, is having about having choices, but I don't think that it means just the ability to do as you please without being concerned for your fellow traveler on the journey because. Uh, for example, under COVID, if we all did as we please now, we could be making um, some people very sick and, and, and dying. And that to me is not freedom. That's not, you know, that's like freedom is choice with, with uh, limitation. I like that. Yeah. That ability to choose, choosing wisely. Choosing wisely. Yes. Um, at this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And what is your vision for a new reality? Well, I guess I think the world's greatest need is uh, love and compassion. Because I do believe that if we practiced, if we all practice love and compassion, a lot of the problems we're seeing in the world today would go, would diminish or go away or would cease to exist. And we would have peace and we would be concerned about people around the world who are starving and people around the world who don't have health care and people around the world who don't have employment. And very wealthy people would not be trying to hold on to their financial empire, but we would be sharing our resources and I think in terms of the vision, you know, I think what's happening now in 2020 is we're seeing this huge energetic sort of vibrational shakeup in the planet. And I think we're really moving away from very patriarchal energy. And I think, and I like to believe that we need much more energy of the divine feminine uh, present in the world. And I'd like to believe that we are moving toward that. And I think that's certainly a vision that I think is worth, worth moving toward. And, um, 
you know, getting much more balanced in the way that we approach life and on our issues in the world. Right. Yeah. Balancing these two energies. Right. Yes. Uh, you also mentioned compassion and love. So I'm wondering what the difference is. You know, I don't know that there's a big difference. I think that there's there's a there's a little bit of a difference though because you can be compassionate towards someone and not necessarily be loving or I mean I think to love you almost have to really know someone. So, you know, I love people in my family because I know them. So, I think compassion is more general. I think we can show compassion to people we don't know, to strangers, to the delivery person, to the store clerk, um, to the homeless person. We don't know them uh, and we don't need to know people to show compassion. Yeah, at a personal level, right. Right. We don't need to know them at a personal level to demonstrate compassion. That makes sense. Uh, what, where, and who is God to you? Oh, (laughs) what, where, and who is God? Oh, my goodness. What, where, and who is God? Well, you know, I believe that different people have different faith traditions. And so while there might be some people that might view God in a very traditional sense, there might be other people that view God as a higher power, or there might be people who view God as a goddess or a woman or, um, you know, maybe a monk or something like that. I think, I think whatever your faith heritage says to you about God, what I would say is that God, I'm using God in quotes for however a person may define God. God is everywhere and God is, God is all love. Mm-hmm. God is love. Right. So in a way, you answered my follow-up question about the difference between religion and spirituality. Yes. So two more questions. Yeah. What do you think is the purpose of life? I think the purpose of life is to love, is to show compassion, to, to be there for other people, to help, to help. And I think meaning of life is really found. I don't think we find purpose or meaning in life by sitting in a little corner and um, watching movies all day. I think that meaning or purpose is developed through contribution, through service, through ways that we find to take our unique gifts and give them to the world. That's a great answer. What do you think your unique gifts are? What are my unique gifts? Oh, wow. These are really hard questions. <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm really laughing because, you know, you. I'm thinking, I'm not sure these are warm-ups. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, what, is my, what are my unique gifts? I think we all do have unique gifts. And I, I, I've always been told by my students and clients and friends that I'm a very giving person. I'm, I'm a, I do think I'm a really wonderful listener. I think that I, I have a really good gift of listening and of helping people kind of put things together that they're struggling with and trying to listen to that and, and sort of help them make headway with issues that they're trying to resolve. And I think I have a gift for writing. I think I have a gift for networking. I think I'm, I think I'm a fairly loving, compassionate, kind, non-judgmental person because I don't think judgment changes anything. I love the way you speak of yourself because I really believe in um, unconditional self-love. That's beautiful. Thank you. I do too. So let's talk about your work. And my first question is, they had to be these. Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) How did you become a a writer? But before that, why did you become a psychologist? Right. Okay. So those are good questions. Those those are a little (laughs) easier easier for me. (laughs) Yeah. 
they're, they're warm-up questions. Um, well, about the psychologist part, which I guess I was that started about the same time, though, as the writing piece. Um, I've always been really fascinated by people. I'm interested in people. I love to work with people. I would not be somebody that would be happy uh, sitting behind a desk and looking at numbers all day or working with machines. And in fact, just before this, just before this, I was told that my voicemail box was full on my mobile phone. And I, I went to try to find it to, you know, work with that. And I couldn't even find it. So I would not be, I would not be a good engineer or, you know, or an architect. I just wouldn't be. So I've always loved working with people. I started, you know, I was working with people as a college students in groups. I was involved in a lot of leadership projects. I, I like that. And uh, psychology, you know, is sort of that really is the study of human behavior. And so because I'm a very, I do think I'm a very, very curious person. And I think that served me well in life. So I think it was kind of a natural because I love people and I'm loved, I love, you know, I love learning and I'm very curious that psychology was just sort of a good choice for me because it fit my interests. And um, when I started doing graduate work in psychology, it was emphasized to us that if we were going to pursue an academic position, which I did pursue, I, I ha- I'm not now, but I have been an academic, that we would have to publish or perish, as the phrase goes, publish or perish. Well, I did not want to perish. So. <laughs> right. Of course not. <laughs> Not at my tender young age then, especially. Well, I don't want to perish now either. So I I started writing actually psychology textbooks. And I've written psychology textbooks for something like uh, an, an embarrassing number of years, about uh, 45 years I've been writing col- college psychology textbooks. <laughs> I've gone through a lot of editions. I loved writing textbooks because you're always updating them. And so I could always learn and I could always be curious and read more research. But then I wanted to write a self-help book, which I use that phrase lightly. I think, uh, you know, I think we do need to help ourselves. I think the airlines get this right when they say, put your own oxygen mask on first. But I also think that I've heard a few people say, well, self-help isn't correct because we, we want to be helping other, other people. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I mean, you put your own oxygen mask on first, but it doesn't mean that you sit there and they ignore the fact that your seatmate isn't breathing. It just means that you put you, you help yourself first and then you turn to people around you and you're, you're helping other people. So it's, a, it's not an either or, it's a both and. So I wanted to write a book that was helpful to people. And I decided to write about um, initially about grief and loss because that was my own, has been sort of my own personal story for the last 11 years. And I, and when my father and husband died 11 years ago within three months of one another, Valeria, I couldn't find, I could not find a really good book that helped me on the, the kinds of feelings that I was having. So I thought, well, I'll just write my own. <laughs> and I did. Yeah, very good idea. Actually, it's beautifully written. Um, so much information. I have lots of questions for you here on that topic. I think you already mentioned the inspiration to write that book, so it was losing people. Uh, but what was the intention of writing your book, Sweet Sorrow? Well, my intention was really a, a several fold, several, you know, several things. I wanted to um, write a book that was both, you know, I guess comforting. I wanted to bring comfort to people and I also wanted to provide information to people. And so, you know, some people have said your book is sort of like a guidebook. 
because it's very inspirational. It's very comforting. And at the same time, there's a lot of really good psychological information in there that can be used for someone who is in the middle of a grief journey. And aren't we all in the middle of a grief journey now with this pandemic? That's what what I've heard from so many people is, you know, we're the losses and it's just not financial losses, job losses, but just even being sheltered in place and losing our chance to see our families on Mother's Day or holidays or our friends and, you know, loss of our routines, loss of children going to school, loss of graduating seniors getting to walk through commencement. So, I mean, I could go on. Right. So in a way, life and death, uh, they are inseparable. Yes. Death is part of life, not the, um, the opposite of life. Yeah, let's talk about that. How losing people you love changed the way you perceive yourself and life? Well, I think losing people, what it really changed was it changed the fact that I don't see this, what you just mentioned, I don't anymore see this sort of artificial dichotomy between life and death. Because I feel like at the moment, in fact, I sort of don't even call it death anymore. I call it transition. But it, what dies is, what dies is to me is the physical body. You know, something happens to our physical body that causes our physical body to no longer function well. And then the physical body dies. What, what I felt like I learned with all my losses, and they were all people that I really cared about and was very close to, which may have made a big difference. But I felt like I learned that the the energy or the vibration or the spirit of the person still lives. I've gotten so many messages, particularly from my late husband. I still get messages from him 11 years later. And um, so I feel like, like it's not an artificial dichotomy that, yes, the physical body um, does die, but, you know, the energy of the person is always around us. And um, in that sense, the person's spirit is still alive with us. And that really changed my views about life and death. And it also took my fear of dying away. I mean, I'm not ready to die physically, but I don't have this fear of, you know, I don't have this sort of awful nagging fear about dying anymore either. And it also, it also really made me appreciate, I've heard a lot of COVID uh, survivors say this too now, it really made me appreciate how precious life is. And, you know, it's so easy to take take even simple things like our breathing for granted. And so just, it just, I think, you know, one of the lessons that increased my mindfulness, I'm, I pay much more attention to things like the birds and how the birds sound in song and the wind in the trees and the clouds in the sky and, you know, all of those things. And I, I feel much more grateful for everything. And I'm much less likely to complain about things because there's so many things, you know, even in the pandemic, I think there are gifts. I mean, I talked about all the losses and that's true. There are losses and yet there's also gains. I mean, I found what a luxury to be able to have time to take a nap. True. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, a, what a luxury to have time to go outside and walk and not feel rushed. What a luxury to, um, for the planet to be getting some fresh air because we've parked our cars. And, you know, the, the, the climate is being able to take deep breaths now in a way that it didn't. So there's so many pluses for what's happening right now, too. And just even having the luxury of more time, you know, we have more time. We're at home. We have more time in, for the most part. 
maybe not every day, but I've had time to talk to very old friends that I haven't talked with for some time and just develop some some reconnection. And I think that's been wonderful. Right. Yeah. Being able to see the opportunities for growth in the midst of chaos or traumatic loss. So how do we learn to do that, Sherry? Well, it's not something that comes right away in the midst of loss. I will say that. Um, in the, you know, when someone, when we lose something or we lose someone, we lose something precious to us, like a job or a dream, even losing a dream can be very shattering. Um, or we lose someone very close to us. It throws us off, off balance. It throws us off kilter because it turns our life upside down. I mean, I'm much more used to the rhythm now of sheltering at home, but I've been doing it now about two months. And goodness, the first several weeks, I was so, I felt so out of whack. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was just strange. It was very, it was bizarre. Yeah. And so at first, our first job probably is not growth. Our first job is finding equanimity, like regaining our footing. Like when we're in the middle of loss, when it first happens, our initial impetus should be just to regain our footing and to recover our balance and find and maintain our equilibrium. That's kind of our first job because our life has as we knew it, has changed dramatically. And so once we do that, that's kind of the first step. Once we do that, Valeria, then I think we can say, and we can we can start saying, okay, where is the growth piece in this? Uh, if, if grief is a teacher, what are my lessons? Mm, right, I love that. What are my lessons? And mm, um, yeah. If loss is an opportunity, what are the opportunities? If there's a gain for a loss, what are my gains? What are what are ways? Uh, what are kind of my edges that I need to grow in or could grow in? And I, I've seen so many dramatic changes in grief survivors because I do a lot of public speaking now. I do a lot of training. Um, I do volunteer work with um, bereavement and bereaved uh, survivors. And I'm amazed. I'm always amazed at people that will say things like, you know, when I, like, let's say someone lost their their uh, partner. And they'll say, you know, when I was living with or married to Joe, a woman might say, I was very timid and I never wanted to travel. But now that Joe's gone, I find myself traveling all the time because oh, maybe I want to go see my kids or grandkids, or maybe I want to carry on something of Joe's legacy, which means I have to travel in order to do that. And so I think that I have seen grief survivors make tremendous take tremendous steps when it comes to growth and have really grown in ways that they could have never, they do things they would have never imagined doing before the loss, myself included. But in order to do that, it takes that first stage or step that you mentioned, equanimity, calm, and balance, right? So you mentioned the process of grieving, it evolves. So I'm just wondering if this relates to the uh, stages of grief that has been published and talked about. Right. So I'm glad you asked that because, you know, the stages of grief are not, uh, they were developed by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and she really did not develop these as stages for grievers. She developed them as stages for people who were dying. And they're not 
particularly applicable to those of us who are grieving a loss. It's not to say that we don't experience the things that she talked about. She talked about being in denial and bargaining and being angry and then coming to a place of acceptance. It's not not that we may not experience those things. We may, but Grief, I don't believe, is a is a linear thing. It's not like you go through one stage and then you're at another stage and then you're at another stage. I think grief is very cyclical. And I I like to compare it to the waves of an ocean. So, you know, the waves will come in and the waves will go out and some days the waves are calm and then some days there's a storm and the waves are overpowering. And to me, that's grief that you can have very calm, placid days where you don't notice much and then you can have other days and they might even be years later when you get hit with something that brings it all back and it's like standing up in the face of this Herculean wave that is coming at you, and then all of a sudden you're flattened by the water and you kind of don't know what hit you. I'm wondering if that has to do with what some spiritual traditions they call attachment. The more attached we are to someone or something, the more challenging will be to let go. Right. Yes, absolutely. And the and the I think the deeper the grief, the greater the love, the deeper the grief. Do you think we can somehow prepare for um, for losing someone we deeply love? <laughs> Is that possible? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm kind of laughing because, I mean, I think we can prepare intellectually. We can say, we can talk to other people who've gone through it and we can kind of prepare our mind for it. I think it's pretty hard to prepare emotionally for it. I mean, I I think I, be, being a psychologist, I had worked with a lot of grievers. I knew intellectually what to expect, but I was absolutely bereft after I lost my husband. I mean, I was, I had days where I just thought, how am I going to go on? Because I was so bereft and, and so grief stricken. And I just could not, and it was like, I just couldn't quite see where the joy was at, at that moment. So I think it's, we can prepare intellectually, but I think emotionally we, is, is another story. Well, I was going to say, I think that's sometimes why it's hard for people who've never really lost someone close to them to know exactly what to say to someone who does. No, because they haven't quite experienced it. And so they feel at a loss for words or they're not quite sure what to do or what to say. And I, and I understand that. I get that. What is um, the best way to communicate with people who have lost someone close to them and they deeply loved when they have no experience at all? Yes. I think if you feel, if you're unsure you, you just say that. You can say, I'm really sorry. Uh, I heard that you lost uh, Maria, and I'm really sorry that, um, that you did. I haven't gone through anything quite like this, and I don't know exactly what, would, what I could say that would be helpful. But I just want you to know that I'm how sorry I am. And I also want you to know that I'd, I'd love to be helpful in whatever way might be helpful to you. Because sometimes people need some very, you know, we need people after when we're a grief survivor, we need people to be able to listen to us. But we also need people to be able to sometimes do things for us, very concrete things, you know, like go pick up groceries or go pick up someone from the airport coming in for a service. Um, sometimes we even need people to distract us, you know, like just take us out. Uh, you know, to have some coffee or something or, you know, do something that's fun. So there's different ways that we can be helpful to people. And we don't all have to, you know, serve the same function to be helpful to people who are grieving. Yeah, I like what you just said, because most time we tend to say things like, I'm here if you need me, or I'm here for you. But what are you saying that we need to take action? 
Yes, and really ask, really ask the person very directly because when you're in the middle of grief, your energy is low and you're not likely to just to pick up the phone. But if someone says very directly, I'd really like to help, how can I help? Then I might be likely to say, well, I really could use this. I really could use this. But if you just say, I'm here for you, it's so general that I might not reach out to you. True. And that's another question about this support from friends and family. This is another thing that I noticed happens a lot. In the beginning, everyone is trying to help, but they're present. But then after a month or two or three, they just disappear. Yeah. And that's so important. That's so important you bring that up. I'm so glad. Yeah, I think that's a really difficult thing that happens. It happened to me. It happens to most people. You know, we're flooded at the beginning. It's almost too intense. We have too many people coming over. We have too many calls, too many texts, too many cards, too many flowers, too many casseroles. And then people go get busy with their lives and they forget. And we're still in the middle of grief. And sometimes, because there can be a lot to do in the middle of a grief episode, you know, we can have things we have to take care of. Sometimes, you know, we can be busy and then the grief sets in six, nine, even a year later, even sometimes the second year after we lose something or someone can be very hard. So we have to really remember to be in it for the long haul with people and keep checking on people. You know, keep reaching out several months, reach out and call them and say, you know, I know it's a little later. Uh, Do you need, need anything? How are you doing? I'm still thinking about you. I'm still hoping there's some way that I can be of help. And uh, just don't drop drop it because most people drop it. And then when you're in the kind of the throes of grief and you're feeling you're at your worst, you might be feeling the most alone and the most isolated. Yeah, that's such a, a reality, something that happens all the time, right? All the time because we just get busy. I mean, we get we get caught up in our own lives again and we get busy. You know, even when we're not grieving, I I think that it's so important, even if we just put grief aside for a minute, when we care about people, I mean, we talked earlier about love and compassion. When we have family and friends that we care about, isn't part of showing our compassion, remembering those people and reaching out to them periodically to check in and see how they're doing and expressing our warm wishes and, you know, just, you know, continuing to maintain the connection with people. That's how we do it. Yes, I absolutely agree. And that kind of brings me to the question about being uncomfortable around grief and loss that you mentioned, you call it being phobic about grief and loss. Is that something that's real? Sherry, from you. Yes. In the United States, I think particularly, not so much in some other countries, but in the United States, we tend to be fairly grief avoidant or grief phobic. We don't really, we do really don't want to talk about grief. We don't really want to go to the dark side. We don't want to get mired down in something that might make us feel sad for heaven forbid. Uh, You know, and so, for example, a a great example of this is businesses will often give somebody, I mean, I have a friend who just lost her dad and uh, she got, I think, three days of leave, three days of leave and you've lost your parent. I mean, she had to take paid days off because she wasn't ready to go back to work in three days. Plus, she had things to do legally, too. But emotionally, she wasn't ready. But, you know, then you go back to work and nobody wants to hear about it. They want you to come back. And if you are sad, they want you to go hide in the bathroom because they don't want to see your tears. You know, very few people do. 
you know, but you know, it's the yin and the yang. Like we have darkness and light. We have sweetness and sorrow. We have, you know, it's, it's both and. So I agree. So how do we change that? How do we begin to think differently about grief? Well, I think just you're changing it, Valeria, by having this podcast. I think we change it by getting grief on the table, by bringing it out of the shadows and out of the closet and into the light. And we have conversations about it and we educate ourselves about it and we get curious about it. And, um, you know, we try to overcome our own individual discomfort with loss and so that we, you know, sort of practice reaching out to people who have lost something or someone. And this is a great time because there are so many losses in COVID. I mean, even if it's something like your, you know, I have a a neighbor who didn't get to uh, go on her senior trip and didn't get to have her senior prom and didn't, get to walk through, you know, just even like going up to her and saying, you know, I'm really, I f- I'm really sorry that you missed out on these things. That's a good way to kind of practice not being avoidant is, is look out for people. You know, when someone's lost something, I think we know when someone's lost someone. And instead of like running the other way, <laughs> running the other way and not seeing them actually moving toward them and speaking about what it is that they have lost and engaging in a conversation with them. Yes. And that makes me think about wisdom and going back to the compassion has a lot to do with wisdom, understanding that life includes everything. Everything's possible. And this is like you call it a journey. Uh, I love the way you said it earlier about the traveler. (laughs) Yeah, we are traveling here. Travelers. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> fellow travelers on this journey called life. <laughs> yeah, I love the way you said that. Do you think that sorrow and joy can coexist? Yes, I do. I, I think it's almost impossible to have one without the other. I really do, just like light and darkness. And I think I think one of the reasons why people are grief phobic is they think, if I feel sorrowful, I'll be stuck there. But, you know, you really aren't stuck. I mean, even in the midst of grief, in the midst of a really hard loss, when you might be hitting rock bottom, someone can come along and say something funny to you and you can laugh and you can feel joy again. So I think sorrow and joy do coexist. And in fact, I think it's very difficult to really know joy and really feel great joy if you don't ever allow yourself to feel sad or sorrow. I think they, they, they go hand in hand. And, you know, we need to remember that feelings are impermanent, that we don't get stuck in sorrow. We also don't get stuck in joy because you know things move through us energetically. And so we may be very joyful for some uh, during a day and then we could something could happen and we could feel sorrowful and then the energy of that moves through and then we feel joyful again and then the energy of that moves through and something else happens and we feel sorrowful and it's it's all an energetic movement yeah and that's life that's life that's what it means to be alive right yes yes um let me move the conversation to um the experiences you had after Jay passed, that the dreams, that was very interesting. So talk to me about those experiences. Well, you know, my late husband, yes, his name was Jay, and uh, we were very, very close. I think we were, you know, soulmates, really. I think we are still soulmates. And we all, we watched the movie, it's an old movie called Ghost with uh, Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. We had watched that movie about 10 times together and we had always said, this is us. If, 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 if one of us goes, the one who goes first will contact the one who's left. 
And so uh, I had a number, I've had a lot of messages from, from Jay. Uh, some of them have been physical messages, like uh, just a couple weeks ago, I have a closet in my bedroom that has a motion light in it. So the light only turns on if you open the door. And I was laying in bed and getting ready to fall asleep. And all of a sudden, the motion light in the closet came on. And, you know, I'm not anywhere near the closet. And I live alone and nobody else is in the house. And then, and then it goes off. And then it does that a couple times. So I've gotten messages like that, but I've had a lot of dreams from Jay. Um, some of them were dreams about his process, what he was going through. Some of them were dreams for me. They were, had messages for me. Uh, one of the dreams that I love to tell people was because it's a very short dream. So it was, it's very easy to, to talk about in a podcast. But one time he came to me in the middle of the night and I would usually wake up and see his face in front of me. And I just looked at him and I said, honey, what is it like to die? And he said, just wait, just wait. It's genius. <laughs> it's genius. <laughs> well, I mean, I have never forgotten that dream. I tell that dream just about every training I do. That was one dream that really did take my fear of dying away. And I mean, in so many of the dreams, I could tell that he was his spirit still alive. And he talked with me about how uh, after shortly after his physical body had died, uh, he talked, uh, he came in dreams and gave me messages in dreams about how he was going through a spiritual rehabilitation process and he was learning things that he didn't learn when he had been incarnated on earth and some of the things that lessons that he was learning that were good lessons for him and um so i've i've gotten so many dreams and so many messages and um i feel his guidance really all around me and I, and I have conversations with him. You know, I, well, if I, if I'm in a dilemma, dilemma, um, I will often just say, honey, this is my dilemma. Um, if you feel like you're able to, and you have a message for me, you know, I'm welcome. I'd be most welcome to hear it. I have gone to several psychics and mediums and I've gotten messages from him that way as well. Um, so just be open to it. You know, there's a very, real metaphysical quality to this. And I think if we're open to this, we can really get um, connections with the, with a person who's, who's left their physical body. Yeah. So these experiences made you believe in life after death or there's no separation between life and death? Absolutely, yes. Well, maybe both. I mean, I would say both. It it did make me believe that there is something, there's some energetic form that exists in life after death and that there isn't really kind of no separation either in life and death, just like there's sort of no time and space. And, you know, I've read a lot about um, people who've had NDEs or near-death experiences. And they will talk about this too, that they maybe actually had died, their physical body had died, and then they were brought back to life. But they said there, there was some part of them that never, never died, that, that they were always still there, even when the physical body was not breathing or was brain dead for a few minutes or something like that. There was a part of them that they said was always still there. It's also ends the, the fear of death, which is a wonderful thing to live in such a way. I would love for you to read a passage in your book where Jay writes about control and uh, our own truth. That was such an interesting passage. Yeah, at the end. Yeah, this is a note. 
Yeah, this was a note that he had written when he he had stage four cancer. And if he couldn't sleep, he would get up and write these things, which I found after his his physical body died. The issue of control, he said, interesting word. Most seem to want it. Many fear losing it. Some think it's an illusion. Others see control as a problem rather than a solution. Well, I think at best, I have control of myself when I can direct my attention toward a truth about me. When I do not want to face a truth that is beyond the boundary of my self-acceptance, I will usually try to control others or a situation. Mm. Wow, that is such a powerful statement, message, really. He was a very wise man. He was a very wise man. He was a psychotherapist. He donated his body to um, medicine, to science. And then we had a memorial service about two months after, after his date of physical body transition. And so many of his clients came to his service. And even though there's HIPAA, you know, which means you don't really tell anyone, people just got up and they said in front of all, of all these people, I was his client and <laughs> oh my God, he did this for me and he did this for me and he did this for me. He was a really, truly wizard of a psychotherapist. He was a marvelous psychotherapist. He was one of the most loving and but most insightful wise people that I've persons I've known. Yes, I can sense that wisdom. It's profound wisdom. Thank you for sharing that. And I also love the way you ended that section with I love you, I miss you, but most of all I remember you. Yeah, that remembering. Beautiful. Would you like to add anything, Sherry, before I ask you my final questions? I think I think that's it. I just uh, I really want to say that I'm really grateful to you for asking me to be on your podcast, and I want to wish your listeners peace and comfort and joy as they travel on life. Yeah, I love the traveling thing, <laughs> the travelers, right? Thank you. Thank you for your presence and your wisdom too. So, my final questions: What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life? I think my hardest lesson has been something you mentioned earlier, and that was like how we we can be attached to someone or something, and yet it's often we need to be able to learn to let go. So how do we how are we attached in a healthy way? How can we be attached to a person or a situation or you know something we love? but not so attached to it that we just feel decimated if we are, you know, the thought of letting go. That's probably been my hardest lesson. It's so true. And then I go back to um, that, what we talked earlier too about unconditional self-love. So that goes back to love and always goes back to love. So it seems to me, if we, uh, if we love ourselves unconditionally, then we let go with grace. We surrender. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, what is another word for healing? Another word for healing, I think I would say wholeness. Wholeness, because I think when you are healed or healing, you are on the path to becoming whole, W-H-O-L-E. Then I think being healed is synonymous pretty much with being whole, whole in like my body, mind and spirit. Yes, I agree. And uh, two more questions. If you knew you would leave the body soon, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? Oh, that's such a fabulous question. You know, so that's kind of like if you had a year to live question. Yes, right, right. Which I think is a, it's a question we all need to be constantly asking ourselves because Otherwise, we really don't know whether we're living our true values or not. Um, if I true, if I someone said to me, "You have a year to live," uh, I, I guess what I would I would do something differently, and I would uh, spend the year 
pretty much exclusively with my two daughters and my grandchildren who do not live near me. So I live, we all live in different states. And so if I knew my time was going to be very limited, and I try to spend, what's well, hard right now, right, during COVID, because right. you can't. True, <laughs> yeah. And that's been really that's challenging. True. But um, yeah. But I would, yeah, I would really want to sort of soak up the the year with my daughters and granddaughters. I just think being a mom is, I know yesterday was Mother's Day, being a mom is just, it's been one of the greatest privileges and honors of my life. I, I, I love being a mom. I love that my daughters are moms now. Um, and just being around my, my daughters and their wonderful hubbies and my, my wonderful granddaughter and wonderful little baby grandson just brings me immense joy immense joy. I mean, so yeah, that's probably what I would be doing. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be lying on a beach somewhere. I wouldn't be out traveling somewhere. I, I really do. I I really do intentionally try to create opportunity to spend a lot of really good quality time with my, with my own family because they're just very, very precious to me. Right. Oh, it sounds really wonderful. It is a question I believe it's to be reflected upon every single day, right? Because sometimes we're not, we won't get to have a year to live a lot of times, even much less. No, no, my husband didn't. He had six months. Once he was diagnosed, he had six months. And, you know, people with COVID, they can be gone in a week or two weeks or three weeks. Uh, what are three things about life you know for sure? Oh, I don't know if I know anything for sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good answer, too. (laughs) Things I know about life for sure. Well, I mean, I know that um, we all have the capacity to be far more loving than we probably are. I think we all have the capacity as human beings for great love and great insight. Uh, I I also think one thing I know pretty sure is that most things are impermanent, you know, that we don't stay in our physical body forever because it gets old. Um, Our feelings and beliefs and thoughts are not permanent. We don't get stuck in certain ways that we feel or think or believe. Um, Things change. I think that's one thing I know for sure. Things change all the time all the time. Things are always changing. Um, So maybe those are two things I know for sure. (laughs) Change is around us and we are capable of great love and great wisdom. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much for your wisdom, your presence, Sherry. Um, Has been a joy. So beautiful. Thank you. Fun. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Okay, great. Thank you so much. So um, you can you can find Sweet Sorrow in, it's hard to go to bookstores now. It's in Barnes & Noble, but it's uh, online, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Target, or sometimes as I like to call it, Target. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> Um, (laughs) so, you know, all of those on online retailers, uh, we're all shopping a lot online these days. I know libraries may have some copies. I'm on Facebook, uh, Sherry Cormier, C-O-R-M-I-E-R at Sweet Sorrow Book. I'm on, uh, Twitter, Sherry Cormier at Sweet Sorrow Book. And then my website is www. Sherry Cormier author, A-U-T-H-O-R, just like it sounds, SherryCormierAuthor.com is my website. Wonderful. Thank you so much again. Go talk some, Sherry. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Sherry Cormier, please visit her website, SherryCormierAuthor.com
learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.